Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Vernon Glenn, author of Friday Calls, a Southern novel, which is set in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, mostly on a sinful Friday night. Kirkus Reviews describes Glenn's prose as full of color and motion and says that Friday Calls is a lyrical Southern tale of rippling effects. When things go wrong on a Friday night on both sides of the tracks and on the tracks themselves, lives change quickly and the law comes to collect. Lawyer Edward F.V. Terrell weaves his way amongst the chaos. He represents a white woman killed by a reckless but rich white man and defends a poor black man on trial for killing another black man in a drink house. The odds of prevailing require a cool head and a clever strategy. Vernon starts the show with a reading from a section of the book where a train crash changes many lives and starts a story on a path whose ending is uncertain, to say the least. As the big train sweeps around the long tree-lined curve, There are just a few lights glimmering out along the line sweeping past. Dark has come on. It is warm. And then H.E. Knight screams, and Jenkins Gordon snaps his face to the track line in front. Knight hollers, breaks, breaks, pulls back on his throttle in a death grip yank, the ratchet back sounding like the lightning bolt shuffle of a deck of cards from hell. Gordon sees the disaster before them and is frantically twisting the dials to let the air brakes grab friction. The train jerks and strains to slow, to stop. The tracks are squealing a horrible wail. Conductor Kevin, in a hazy doze in the jump seat behind them, starts up into a clearer consciousness and says, What? What? And he instantly knows, as did the other two, that something or someone was getting ready to be sent to kingdom come. It is all happening too fast. Night lays on the giant air horns, and the ditch lights roll up on a black sedan moving onto the track. It is going to be too late. Everything seems to be going in slow motion, but the sensation is a lie. The strobing gyro lights at the top of the cab microflash the car in and out of its brighter-than-dimmer view. Is he playing chicken with us? Is he trying to kill himself? Knight and Gordon think in mute concert. Trainmen know these things, have seen these things, but this is the Friday milk run, and those few beers have relaxed their minds and their hands. The train is piling up with the cars slugging into the backs of those before them, creating an uncoiling, slamming thrust. They are certain more than a few coupler jerks 
lungs as they bust loose. The train shakes, rocks sideways on the track. Air, air hose lines pop loose. Even as the train seems to slow, it feels as if it is being shot slung down the track, an enormous accelerating missile fighting against itself to no avail. Somewhere within seconds of something after 8 p.m., Southern 1105 slams broadside into a dark sedan, carving it almost in two. The impact, simply a slight jerk and a shudder inside the cab, even as a gashing, ripping, tearing metal screeching louder as the huge engine's deep steel catcher has now taken hold of the car and is shoving it, carrying it, dragging it down the rails, its tires blowing up, sparks deep showering up above the windows of the engine, glass shattering until the car's nose is smashed into a stout signal pole just off the tracks. The car is flung away, set free to whirl airborne, parts and pieces of it flying, twisting in brief flight. It then rolls hard into the ground of the deep graded gully off the tracks, rolling one last time into the weeds and trash, a trailing flame like a dying Roman candle pluming from its rear, bright flaring, sputtering, then gone. The train keeps slowing as it passes the automobile's carcass and it keeps going more than another thousand yards, its length steadying but looser now. The car's parts have come apart and are in pieces, moving with the lessening momentum. The train has killed and come aloose and is settling into its yawing, slowing, and stop. Its drivers had lost its control, and the fear of it all instantly floods their throats and guts in sour, thick bile. The native Tar Heel author Vernon Glenn was educated in the classroom at Choate UNC Chapel Hill and Wake Forest University School of Law, and in the real world by digging deep ditches, running a jackhammer, hauling block and bricks every summer to the tune of starting at 60 cents an hour, and practicing law as a litigator for more than 40 years. He says he adores the courtroom as well as Southern people and stories. Glenn has scouted and handicapped football and basketball games, testified before Congress, and traveled widely. He lives in Charleston, South Carolina, and keeps what he calls a perch in his hometown of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Friday Calls, set in Winston-Salem, mostly on a Friday night, is his first novel. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcast. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, Vernon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. Nice to be here. Yeah, so you came all the way up from Mount Pleasant? Yeah. Across the river from Charleston. Yeah, you say Charleston, but it's Mount Pleasant, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> now, you're a lawyer. Um, you've been a lawyer for many years. You got me by about uh, five years at that time before I got out of it. How long are you going to be at it? Uh, this is probably my swan song. Uh, uh -huh. 45 years is enough. Yeah, uh, 45 years, not 40 years. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah. So uh, what's kept you in the law for 45 years? I've really loved it, enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. I never had any uh, idea that I would go to law school. I was When I did go to law school, it was only at the urging of my father. 
who said you needed three more years of maturity at least. I was a bad law student. My last semester at Wake Forest, I had two, a, two A's and four B's, and that raised my class rank to 123 out of 128. <laughs> and that's an absolute true story. Well, you see, uh, so you got out of there by, uh, by the skin of your Skin own. of my teeth. Yeah, uh, yeah. Me, me and another fellow, a dear friend, Terry Crumpler, mm-hmm. who still practices in Winston-Salem, um, threw in together, uh, and we just went to work. And yeah. I found my way to the courthouse real quickly. Terry found his way to the respectable venue of the deed vault. Mm. Uh, he's a fine transactional lawyer, and right. I just love the courthouse. Yeah, we have that in common. I went to Wake Law School. That's uh, where I met my wife. Uh, yeah. I did the whole moot court and trial court thing and uh, came out just ready to, ready to go, you yeah. know, just wanted the courtroom. And, and it was a great, you know, experience. I enjoyed more than anything else about practicing law, being in, the, in and around the courtroom. That was the part that I didn't like later in my career was all the electronic discovery and all the yes. stuff that goes with, with all that. You know, it seems like that technology was making it more difficult. But, uh, well, congratulations on, you know, about to finish up here. And when you do, you're going to do what? Uh, I'm currently working on, your next book? on yeah. my next book. Okay. I'm close to finishing that. I have plans for another children's book. We did one before. Mm-hmm. Going to write some short stories and um, travel. Well, this is anything but a children's book that we're talking about today, Friday Calls. We start out the book here with this uh, horrific train crash, and we see the engineers uh, drinking beer on the the milk run. Uh, What time period did that happen? This happened— because this, this, there's a, there's a trueness to oh, this. Oh, yes, this is about ninety percent of this book is true. Okay, it's a uh, novel, but it's it's infused with all this. Th- there are two main events, and one of the main events is this train crash, uh, which happened in 1952 when I was two years old, and you'd hear about it in family discussion from here and there, and here and there. And I asked my mother one time some years ago, well, "What happened with Uncle Arch?" She said, we don't want to talk about that. <laughs> and so that piqued my curiosity. And I, well, yeah, what do you tell a kid? We're not going to talk about that. That kid's going to go find out what happened. Well, I hired a researcher, and okay. he went down to the Forsyth County Public Library and pulled all the newspaper clippings, and it was horrendous. And then my mother was ready to talk about it openly. What, uh, what, what was her age when she wanted to talk about it? Uh, let's see. She'll be 95 in a few days. So this would have been about when she got 90, 91. Okay. So she held that inside for, for all those years. She yeah. sat on it. Yeah. Yes. And, and so the character in the book that we see at the outset of the book, Archer Glenn, mm-hmm. he's upper crust, Winston-Salem, owner of a company. Who was this man in real life? He was my uncle. And he, he was, was he was he, the guy driving the He the, was the guy driving the car. He was my father's brother. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was on his way to a gathering uh, on the eastern side of Greensboro before a bunch of them were going down to Chapel Hill to see a football game. And things went awry. And then, as you and I know and others who read the book know, things really go awry. Yeah, but the awry part that takes place at the junction of the train and the car, which you just described in this first read, Mm -hmm. he's got someone else in the car with him. Yes, he does. Who, who is that person? Her name was Mary Sue Martin. Uh, she had formerly been in the stenography pool with the family company. Um, she was not discovered in the wreckage until the morning after. And this was not someone that he was supposed to be with that night, no. was it? Uncle Archer was married, yeah. so yeah. there was great consternation. Yeah, And he was headed to a spend-the-night party 
right, right with a bunch of other guys who yeah. were out with their mistresses. It, right. sure, it sure looked like that, yes. It sure looked like that. Yeah. Okay, so that's why they didn't talk about it in the film. That's right. They, the whole thing had to be shut down as rapidly as possible. Now, you changed the names of some, like the company name, you changed from what to what? So. Uh, well, called it Quality Textiles, but the real name of the company is Quality Oil Company, mm-hmm. which my late father, Joe Glenn, started in 1929. So this is such a great story, and they say that truth is often better than fiction. Why didn't you write this as sort of a family memoir or something? Yeah. Well, because I combined it with some other stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, I just had fun running with it, I think maybe in my mind. It was easier to do that way. I was more comfortable with it, creating it as, quote-unquote, a fiction. Okay. Now, the other the other truth to the story, which we're going to talk about, is the trial of Kenny Peak. Yep. And you know about this trial because... I represented Kenny Peak. Yeah, and there's a lawyer. I gave you his full name in the opening here, but he goes by Eddie Terrell in the story. He's Eddie Terrell. Eddie Terrell, And yeah. that... That's pretty much me. Uh, My full name, my mother got excited when I was born and named me Edward Vernon Farrell Glenn. So you can extrapolate the Eddie Terrell from that pretty easily. All right. And it's all true. It happened. So Kenny, uh, Kenny Peake, the man who's charged, he's a a real, uh, is that a real name or just? That's a real person. Okay. That's his, uh, there's a transcript in there of his preliminary hearing. Okay. Uh, in the Forsyth County District Court. Yeah, and just to give the listeners a little bit of flavor, for, and we're going to talk about, and you're going to read different parts of the book today, and we're going to mm-hmm. get into it, but in terms of the overall you know, arc of the book here, you've got sort of two parallel stories going on. You've got, you know, as I said, Archer Glenn, who's got a couple of brothers, and they're in the upper crust of Winston-Salem. He's on the way with his mistress. They're going to have a big time and then go to the Carolina football game. And then you got the other side of the track, so to speak, where they're setting up on a Friday night for a drink house mm-hmm. and a big party. Always. And Kenny Peak is kind of carrying somebody's bags around. Kenny is a, 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 a gopher. A gopher. And Kenny gets a little upset with the person he's gophering for. Bo Diddley. Bo Diddley. Okay. I, I liked all the names. I will confess, you had a lot of names in this book you know, know. to keep up with, but I you know. had some clever names, and, and Bo Diddley was one of them. Um, that was really his name. Well, his real name was Benjamin Winfrey, but everyone called him Bo Diddley. Yeah. So we got uh, Kenny Peake. He's going to be on trial later mm-hmm. in the book because shortly after everything goes down at the train track, there's this shootout at the drink house, and right. Kenny happens to be holding the, the correct end of the gun if you want to live to tell about it. Right? True. So we got those two stories going on. Um, setting. Let's talk about the setting of this book. It's a true story. It's mm-hmm. set in Winston-Salem in the 50s? Uh, 50s and 60s. Yeah. The, uh, the actual charges did not occur until the early 80s, mm-hmm. that incident, the shooting at right. the drink house. So you kind of combined those two. They just stayed in my head, and I, I welded them together, okay. and it worked pretty good. The setting is Winston-Salem, which is interesting. At one time was known as the uh, had more millionaires per capita than any city in the country, enormous fortunes out of tobacco and textiles and you, you had a real dichotomy of the haves and the have-nots at one point in the book I use uh, Old Town Club which is a very fine private country club where a, a wonderful man named Frank Cuthrell was the maitre d major domo and he sort of ran everything from both sides and you, you, you get a feel for this white people 
with any kind of money went to the club or to a restaurant. Black people, they didn't have access to that, and that's how the drink house evolved. The drink house was part of the South. So, so we're going to talk about uh, drink houses and drinking and, and gambling and everything else that goes <laughs> goes yeah. into this. Uh, yep. And and but let's let's talk about uh, well, let's just jump right to drink house for a second. Okay. Tell us what a drink house looked like, what it was, and did you ever go to a drink house? Uh, the answer to the latter would be yes, on a number <laughs> of occasions. Yeah. Uh, not all, more recently to do research. They're still around. So that's your excuse? Yeah, yeah, yeah they're yeah. still around, not as prevalent now. But the the drink house was, a drink house is an innocuous looking uh, home in a impoverished or impoverished neighborhood uh, that looks pretty plain and simple from the front, but you get on in there and there's plenty of room for a bar and a kitchen and people would go in there and drink liquor that had been cut by a lot of water. Kind of a pop-up bar? You know, oh, fire, yeah. Fire night. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's okay. A food, it's the, it's the kind of the equivalent today would be food trucks. Mm. And um, sometimes there was always music, always dancing, lots of laughter and cutting up. They were fun, but boy, you don't want to. If you got a reputation for being a bad place where fighting and other bad things happen, you got you got closed down by supply and demand. People wouldn't go. They called them a bucket of blood. So, Vernon, while we're on this topic, mm-hmm. uh, in Chapter Six, uh, which the, the heading of this chapter is culture, mm-hmm. I'd like you just to t- uh, do a little read from the beginning of that chapter mm-hmm. uh, and give us a flavor for what you've just been talking about. Okay. The South was always set up for the underculture sale of booze, and Winston-Salem was a good drink house town. Drugs got into the mix later at the commerce of it all unfolded as supply met demand. The North and Midwest and West and the rest had a bar, saloon, speakeasy culture. South did not. The Southern well-to-do went to the club or to each other's homes. The rest scrapped around in places where the word got out. There was always music, a radio, a guitar player, or a guy on a stand-up piano. The South was religious, so piety triumphed. Trump, sorry, the South was religious, so piety trumped reality, and the consumption of alcohol was an automatic bad thing. The South bought into prohibition early, and with the passage of the 18th Amendment, the pursuit of a jug of juice became cloudier and not only morally reprehensible but illegal to boot. And so these underbelly culture was born. These juke joint operators bought their rot gut whiskey and beer in bulk from illegal out the back door suppliers who in turn had gotten the hooch from warehouses and truckload pilferers. Money changed hands, folks looked the other way. There were no permits, no licenses, no sales tax. There were no hours of operation. They just operated as and when they wished. Blue laws, what blue laws? Most of the time, the police welcomed the drink houses. In the less than well-to-do parts of town, there was one every few blocks. They were uh, local. People were in one place. They were not roaming the streets. It was all self-contained and most always peaceable. Drink houses countenanced a good time, even rowdiness and dancing, but fighting was aboard and quickly quelled, and heavier violence was absolutely verboten. If a place got marked as dangerous, it instantly was known as a bucket of blood, and people stayed away with the in-game predictable results. And as marijuana came into play, 
the attendees were usually even more soothed and calm. A drink might be two or three bucks, usually a darker whiskey cut by half with water. If there was a call for a straight shot, the price went up. Places usually kept the offerings pretty lean. Canada dry bourbon, a blended whiskey, cheap vodka, one kind of beer, lower shelf blats or some such. Moonshine was often available. Some folks liked to call shine chicken because it made you real limber. Some folks called it Joe Lewis because it had the knockout punch. The knockout punch, huh? <laughs> yeah. Been there. Been there, done that. But yeah. Yeah. You know, that's field, yeah. field testing. All right, so we got the drink houses. We got the Joe Lewis punch. We got uh, some of them are peaceable. Please let it happen. Some of them get violent. Uh, of course, in your story, one of them does get violent, mm-hmm. and it leads to a trial and all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, – you also talk early in the book about uh, the, the, the gambling culture at that time. Mm-hmm. What was there? Is that part of the true story of your family as well? It is part of the true story. Okay. And it, I would tell you it continues to this day. Um, like private bookies? and Those are pretty much gone now. Most, uh, uh, most people use offshore accounts. Uh, you can go online and bet on just about anything you want to. But uh, back in this time, uh, Mr. Harry Davis was my father's bookie, my grandfather's bookie, my uncle's bookie, um, ran a nice beer and wine and whiskey business, and was a very interesting, tough man, but he was a fair dealer. Yeah, well, let's, I want to talk about this little section after you read it because there's a family connection <clears throat> to it. Harry Davis is on his way to pick up Mm-hmm. Some money he's owed because of a bet that his client mm-hmm. has taken and lost on, right? <laughs> and needs to pay up, and he doesn't know when he goes that his client has just passed away. That's right? right. That's right. And so I want you to pick it up there whenever you're ready and read that section. Okay. Hey Harry, how are you? She says you want to see Joe. Joe's wife cast her eyes to the floor and then suddenly straightened her back. Harry, Joe died last week. I guess you didn't hear. Her voice trailed off. It was Harry's turn to be flustered. His hat came off his head and was held by his side in respect and deference. Oh, oh my, I didn't know. I am so sorry. Please pardon my interruption. I'll be going now. Again, I am so sorry. A bemused smile came across the widow's face, and her eyes sparkled just enough to show. Harry... Did you come to collect from Joe? There was no animosity in the question, just pleasantness. Harry had stepped down the walk a few steps and paused. Well, yes, but never mind. It's not that important. You have much more to deal with. I'll be on my way. Harry, please come back here. Don't you know that if you had owed Joe, I'd have known about it and would have been down to see you in a few days? Well, I expect that's so. How much did he owe? Well, $290. I'll be right back. And she came back with the cash in just a few minutes. It was time to clear out that cigar box under the bed anyway. Are we square now? He smiled and bowed slowly. Yes, ma'am. She said, you know, Harry, Joe always loved his business with you, enjoyed it so much, and y'all have always brought the Coca-Colas and ginger ale and beer and all like clockwork. I know we don't see much of one another, but I am glad I got to tend to that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Harry said, no, ma'am. Thank you. I'm glad it worked out. He turned to go, and as he went down the walk, she called to him one last time with just a little laughter in her voice. 
Besides, Harry, it wouldn't do for Daddy and Brother to ever know that Joe stiffed you at the end. Harry chuckled, waved, and walked on to his car. Harry never told the story. The lady did over and over and over again. It became part of the community, embedded in honor and good humor. Harry, this person that kept telling the story over and over again in the community was who? My mother. Your mother. Mm -hmm. Okay. Does she still still tell that story? She will from time to time. Um, She's remarkable. As I said, she turns 95 in a few days. Uh, I'm on my way to Winston-Salem after our visit here to visit with her. Um, She is frail, but she is as sharp as it gets. She remembers everything. Yeah, well, that's that's. An, I mean, that did bring some um, a little bit of sort of the culture, the color to the story as to what's going on in that part of town. Um, you know, in, in the lives of these people and mm-hmm. what they're doing and how they were sort of connected emotionally to to the people, even their bookies. <laughs> I scouted for about thirty two years for the gold sheet out of Los Angeles. That all started because of a meeting, a random meeting I had when I went out to the Final Four in Los Angeles in nineteen seventy two. People love to gamble. Mm. Now, not everybody, but it's fun. And if, as long as you don't go crazy, only bet what you can afford to lose. Uh, I was a senior ACC scout for the goal sheet for 20-some-odd years. And the, the interest is just fascinating. Well, the thing about gambling, I've only been to Las Vegas a couple of times. I went one time with my dad and my son, all of whom are named Hamlin Landis Wade in some version, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, right. and on the way out there, you know, we decide, well, how much money are we going to bet? That's exactly how much we lost. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, and you try to make it last as long as you can over the course of the weekend. <laughs> now, some people would say, now the flip side of that coin is, I was with my daughter one time driving out, and we stopped at one of these floating barges in, in mm-hmm. St. Louis or something. You mm-hmm. know, we go and I go to the blackjack table. And I gave her like twenty bucks to go do something, and we come back about thirty minutes later. I'd lost my twenty or thirty bucks, and I asked her how she did. She said. Well, she made 20 bucks because she never used my 20 <laughs> She put it in her pocket. You know, She was the one who came out on top. She thought it was a better result. I, but I had a good time, right? So the, that's the, same. the odds always favor the house. The odds always favor the house. So a couple of things here. You've got a lot of characters, as I said, early in the book. You've got some great names. We've got uh, we've already talked about a few. But Kenny Peak has a sidekick. His name's Pee Wee, right? That's right. And you got Rise. Tell us about Rise. Rise, uh, great big woman, uh, very smart. Um, I made her acquaintance because I was appointed to represent her uh, in a matter in federal court. We got to be good friends and always stayed in touch. Um, she is imposing in her size, but very graceful. Uh, I haven't had contact with her in years and years and years. I don't know whether she's still with us or not, but, but boy, was, she, she was a wonderful that person. That was her nickname, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. And she did she in real life bring you the case of Kenny Peak? Yes. That was her brother? Yes. Okay. Bo Diddley, he's the big shot who got shot. Right? That's right. <laughs> By Kenny Peake. Born Benjamin Franklin Winfrey, and they had some sort of jokes, tongue-in-cheek about him when they pulled him into the morgue about whether this was a Benjamin Franklin type or something. Right. They yeah. said, said, where did Benjamin Franklin come from? I thought yeah. he was a fellow up north that flew kites and had keys on yeah. him. And then you've got the Glenn boys, Joe and Bobby, brothers to Archer and owners of Quality Textile. And there's a family sort of concierge, Bobby Stockman. Did you base that on some real? Yeah, you know, that's that's the late Bobby Stockton. Stockton, who, okay. who was we? I just changed his name a little bit, okay. but he was he was the consigliere. Yeah, uh, he was the great advisor to the company, the tax guy, everything. All right. Smart man. Okay, so um, the book tends to pick up speed after the after the crash. Um, 
we've got a uh, shooting at the drink house. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have you, we're going to talk about this in a second. I'm going to have you do a little read before our break here. Mm-hmm. Let's just set up what happened. There's a party. Mm-hmm. There's a shooting. Um, Kenny Peake's involved. Bo Diddley's giving him a hard time. He he shoots him, sort of drops the gun. Everybody scatters, and the police show up. Did I set that up? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Kenny actually handed the gun to somebody who then handed it to somebody else for its disposal. And this scene involves the police who are coming to investigate. We got the police talking to uh, Kurt Miner. Who's Kurt, who's Kurt Miner, by the way? Kurt Miner owns the drink house. Okay. Well, that's what everyone thinks. Okay, that's what everyone thinks. All right, so this is the police officer who's talking, so pick it up there. Hello there. This your place? Asks Wilkins. Yeah. Aren't you Miner? Kurt Miner? That's right. We got a call. Someone in the neighborhood called in gunshots from here. What's the story? Fella got shot. You see it happen? No, it was in the back making food. Uh-huh. They walk up toward him and up the steps. Mind if we come in? No, help yourself. The two step in while Miner holds the screen door open for them. The front room is dark, save for one lamp on below the framed pictures of Dr. King, President Kennedy, and Jesus. The back room and kitchen are still lit with many strings of red, green, and blue Christmas lights, and one bare bulb back in the kitchen glares, too. How about we turn on some lights in here? This is all I got. Party going on? Sure. Friday night, good time to have one. Hot summer night. People like to have a good time. They see Rise... They see a shotgun leaning in the corner next to her. Who are you? That's your gun? No, I'm Rise. I help cook. They survey her enormity. She is mountainous. She invents no threat. She is calm and polite. You see anything? No, I was cooking and making sandwiches and the like. That thing loaded? Not that I know of. What do you know of? Not much. The food and instruments of Friday night street dining are arrayed in front of her. She is instantly credible. Wilkins and Miller side glance at each other. They know they have decided to let the weapon just sit there. They turn back to Miner. Where is the guy that got shot? Not here. Not exactly sure. Up the hill somewhere. You might ask her. Miner nods towards Felicia, sitting slumped, her head down. What's your name, young lady? Felicia. Felicia Lineberger. Bo was my man. Who's Bo? My man who Kenny killed. Who is Bo? Bo Diddley. Um, Benjamin Winfrey. She raises her head, a brief defiance of her ruined place and station flaring. Oh, Bo Diddley shot and killed. One detective looks at the other. They both nod. One winks. That's right. And who did it? Kenny? Who is Kenny? That son of a bitch, Kenny Peak. Okay, now where is Mr. Diddley? Some men's took him up to the church up the hill. Okay, now where is this Kenny Peak? He ran out after he shot Bo. I saw it all. He's out there, somewhere. She waves an arm vaguely toward the front door. Okay, you stay right there. Rise steps forward beyond the counter. Sir, Mr. Detective, Kenny Peak is just down the street standing under a tree. Really? So you say. How do you know that? I saw him there. I told him to stay there. I don't know what happened. He is not armed. He's my brother. Oh, really? Okay, you both stay right here. So it's just sort of a cavalier thing. They don't really know much about what happened, even though they witnessed everything that went down, right? Nobody knows nothing. Nobody knows nothing. All right, so listeners, uh, we're going to take a short break here. We'll be right back. We've got uh, 
We've got some more of this story we're going to talk about with Vernon. We've got uh, his writing life segment. Uh, we're going to bring in the courthouse scenes in just a moment. Uh, so please stay with us. Hey, listeners, I hope you're enjoying this episode with Vernon Glenn and his book, Friday Calls. Uh, I'd like to invite you to check out our Patreon page. That's uh, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, all one word. We've got a lot of great content on that page that we make available to uh, supporters of the podcast uh, for a small small monthly contribution. You can uh, help us uh, help authors give voice to their written words, uh, help us uh, support them to get them on the show without uh, it costing the authors anything and uh, allowing you, the listener, to hear some, some great reads and some some great work uh, by local and regional authors. We also have some free content on that site from time to time. We've done some uh, some different things to, to put content available. One of the neat things that, uh, about that site is you get your own private RSS feed, and that may not mean much to anyone, but uh, it just means that it's going to pop up in your, your podcast uh, feed on your mobile device like any other podcast, so you can listen to the exclusive content that way and also to any uh, free content we put out from time to time on our Patreon page. Uh, yeah, so just you know, go on there and nose around a little bit. Uh, you know, you don't have to join to be a part of this uh, community. We love having people listen, whether they're members or not. And frankly, we really appreciate uh, the fact that you've taken time to do just that. But uh, if you're interested in uh, helping us help authors give voice to their written words and you'd like to get something uh, in return for that, uh, well, check out that site. We've got uh, we've got a lot of hours of content on there with uh, with authors who've appeared on the show, with other experts, and they're talking frankly about their uh, writing, about the processes. Uh, they're they're doing craft lectures. We've done some readings. Uh, just a lot of different types of things on that site. Uh, so appreciate uh, appreciate you taking the time. Appreciate you listening to this show and. Let's get back and find out uh, what's going to happen next in Friday Calls and a little bit about the writing life of Vernon Glenn. Hey, listeners, I'm back with uh, Vernon Glenn, uh, a.k.a. Eddie Terrell, <laughs> or the way around. He is the author of Friday Calls. Uh, it's a southern novel. It's set in Winston-Salem. We've been talking about this book uh, the first half of the show, as you know, and uh, how Winston-Salem was a little different place in the 1950s, uh, a couple sides of the track. Now, Vernon... What's changed in terms of, you know, we talk about two sides of the tracks. I mean, you, you still it, it, you still have two sides of the track, but Winston has undergone a renaissance. Okay. And uh, thanks to the folks from Wake Forest and the Medical Center and the Center for Innovation out behind the Reynolds Building, and it's just growing like crazy, and people are flooding in. And they're good jobs, and people are making better livings. But you still have an underclass, and which is true in any city in this country. So you're a lawyer. You were practicing in Winston Salem, um, and you get uh, you'd represented Rise, and and you get a call from her about this situation that had gone down in a drink house. Right, right. and she it was her brother who was, had, brother. was being charged with first degree murder now, now what kind of firm were you working in at the time were you by yourself were you in a small firm were you a big firm or what um we had grown um terry crumpler and i were still together we had four other lawyers um we were dignified respectable effective mm-hmm. we were good do you do many murder cases though i did a lot of criminal work okay. uh, a lot of manslaughter 
I was involved in two murder one cases that got pled down. I know my way around the jail, okay. and I, I used to ride with the police on a regular basis. So you get this call, and it's not, you know, the accused because the accused is in, yeah, in jail. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, did you have second thoughts about taking the case? Did you you jumped right in? Yeah. None whatsoever. Okay, so I always like rise so much, and, and she. Uh, Straight shooter, so to speak. Well, <laughs> she didn't do the shooting here. <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah, Kenny was a straight shooter. Right, that, right? I guess that was Freud. Yeah, yeah Kenny yeah. was the straight shooter. Okay. So, so did when you went down to the jail and had this meeting with him? Does it? it, it are we seeing some of that in what you're going to read here? Yes. Okay, and and what you're going to read is sort of a way that criminal lawyers talk to criminal defendants who've been accused of of a crime. It's like. Well, tell us about this technique because you're not asking them to tell you exactly what happened, right? Why are you doing that? You, I'll explain it. It'll be explained when I read, okay. but you sort of circle it yeah. and you stalk it a little bit and you get a feel for things, but you don't want to know exactly what happened if indeed something happened that was bad. Because you're going to have to make a decision about whether to put him on the stand and if you put him up there and he tells a different story under oath than what he's told you, then you're in an ethical spot, right? Bad spot. Bad spot. Uh, how do lawyers get out of that spot when that happens? A lot of lawyers do it the right way, and some lawyers do it the wrong way. What's the right way? Well, the right way is you don't want to find out. Mm-hmm. And when you do find out, when it happens, when you're in court and it happens, do you, can you withdraw from the case? Or is that too much of a signal to the court that something, something's you, going you on? You have to approach the bench, and then you'll go into chambers and talk about it. And oftentimes a mistrial will be called. Okay. So you're trying to avoid that as a lawyer when you go in. But the, but the client's a little dumbfounded because the client thinks, well, this is my lawyer. I can tell him anything, and I'm going to be good. And that's what Kenny Peake's thinking when you're going to talk to him. Right. There's a certain naivete. All right. So why don't you read that for us? All right. Now, I need to find out all about you, and I need to find out who all was there last night, and I need you to tell me what you saw and heard and thought. I'll start here in just a minute asking you questions. I'll be careful with those questions, the way I word them and say them, and I want you to think hard and concentrate as, your answer, as you answer them. And I want you to be honest and careful with your answers. But, and this is a big but, I do not want to know whether you did anything that you might be guilty of last night. Do you understand that? It's real important. So I can't tell you about some things about last night? Why? Here's the deal. I'm going to learn things along the way. I'm going to learn a lot along the way. I am starting right now thinking about how I think your case ought to be prepared, how it ought to be set up for trial in front of a jury. One of the many things I've got to think about is whether or not during that trial, which would be some months from now, whether or not I want to put you up on the witness stand to testify under oath. If you were to tell me things now that pointed toward your guilt, and then you were to get on the witness stand and say you didn't do such and such, and I knew you had done such and such, I would be enabling a witness to lie under oath before the court. I cannot do that. We'd both get in a lot of trouble, and neither of us needs any more of that. Do you understand? Yeah, but don't that happen all the time? I mean, shit, don't lawyers want to know what happened and ask their guy, and the guy says, yeah, I did whatever? And then the lawyer helps him lie it around as it goes once they find it out. I'll grant you that probably is so, but there's more than one way to put the whole story together, so let me do my job. Hell, one day I may ask you flat out about it all, but that may or may not happen. 
So please listen to me carefully when I ask you questions. Let's take our time, okay? We're going to be visiting more than a little bit as this thing goes forward. Kenny nods. Now I'm going to jump around a little here. You with me? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I, I didn't have to have quite the same as as a civil trial lawyer as you did as a as a criminal lawyer. But but even then, you do run into some situations to where you know once you learn something, you, you can't put somebody up if they're going to say something different. Oh yeah. I often had this was interesting to me. I would often have. Uh, not often, I'll take that back. I had a couple of times when I would be preparing a witness to testify and we'd be talking about, uh, you know, something and the document would be real problematic. Mm -hmm. And they'd turn to me and they'd say, well, what should I say about this? <laughs> and I'd have to say, well, what you tell me, what, what, what's the truth here? Well, no, but I mean, what's the best thing for us to say? Because this doesn't look very good. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I know. Been there, done that. Yeah, and I said, well, look, I can't. That's not how this works. Yeah. You know, you, you're going to have yeah. to. Once once I went to South Carolina, I, I no longer did criminal work because I didn't know the streets, communities, neighborhoods, cops, you know, uh, solicitors, prosecutors. Right. But you run into the same stuff. Now, what did the doctor tell you? <laughs> well, he told me that I shouldn't do such and such. Well, wait, well that's bad, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, right, well, let's do this. Let's take a little break from the story and do your writing life for a second. You uh, went. You went from uh, lawyer to writer. Um, why so? A little bit of a lawyer still, uh, and that's sort of running out of runway. Uh, as I think I said to you earlier, forty-five years is enough. Uh, the writing thing had been on my mind. Uh, I have kept sporadically and sort of from here to there little journals. Uh, notes, notebooks, pieces of paper, ideas, whatever. And and I was taught to write. Um, I had a good education, and, and it was always there. People would say to me, you ought to write a book, you ought to write a book. Finally, a good friend of mine said, you talk about wanting to write a book, sit down and write the damn thing. <laughs> it's a true story. And uh, that was the nudge that got me started. And a couple of years ago, I wrote this thing, um, and I enjoyed doing it. So, so you're, you're practicing law, um, and like many lawyers that write their first book, they do it while they're practicing law, mm -hmm. and it takes them a long time to do it. Mm -hmm. How many years did it take you to get this done? About a year and a half. Okay, so, and, and what was your routine? How did you work it into your schedule? Well, I have a lot of freedom, so I didn't necessarily have to be in the office, though I did write some of it while I was in the office. Uh, my routine was erratic. I would sit down uh, on a Tuesday and pump out 500 words. I'd sit down on a Sunday and pump out 800. I had an egg timer where I'd twist it and put it on one hour and put it behind the laptop where I couldn't see it. And, and when it <laughs> Who I, gave you that idea? I, that was my idea. Okay. And uh, actually, I uh, have one at my place in Winston-Salem, and I have one at my place down in Mount Pleasant. And what's the purpose? Is it to get you out of your seat in an hour, or is it just it, to? It's just to be productive until that bell rings. Okay. And then if you want to go on forward, I've gotten far more disciplined now. Um, just quickly, I'm almost finishing a, a second novel. Eddie Terrell is the protagonist because people said they liked Eddie and they wanted more Eddie. But I now, my benchmark is write five to six days a week at least a 1,000 words each session. 
Yeah, well, that'll get you a book in a year. Yeah, yeah. or less. Yeah. I'm gonna. This, this one will be done. This next one will be done in eight months. I'll finish it this week. So I have to say that I did like Eddie Terrell better, and I'm only constructive critique was it took too long for Eddie to get into the story. You know, I, I, you know, I don't you know, disagree. Yeah, and, and but now you're going to start the next book with him in the front of the story. Oh yeah, Eddie's yeah. all over this thing. Is this going to be another uh, Vernon Glenn Eddie Terrell uh, adventure, or is it going to be? Is but it true? There's some truth. A lot. So a lot of it's true. A lot of it is fiction. Okay. And but I had a number of people come to me saying they wanted more Eddie Terrell, more Eddie Terrell, mm. uh, and I thought that'd be fun. And so. This next one opens with Eddie and a, an insurance investigator looking into some significant uh, jewel thievery. Okay. Well, so you had a chance to publish um, a couple of different ways. In fact, you had this manuscript. You sent it to someone. They were looking at it at a traditional publisher. They asked you to make a bunch of changes, and you said, three. no, nah, I think I'll self-publish. And, and there were three pre- predominant reasons. One, um, my mother was aged and she really wanted to see it and I knew that if I got into dealing with a publishing house it would slow everything down um, secondly I had a good friend one of my best friends a fraternity brother but was dying of ALS and he really wanted to see it and and I wanted to accommodate him in that regard and then the last one was pretty you know egotistical I'd written it I want to see it I don't yeah. want to wait I want to see it <laughs> so I don't know if that's egotistical, just impatient, right? I can go with impatient. Impatient. It's a little more benign. Uh, So how has this experience of writing and being your own publisher of this book, uh, has the experience been for you? It's been wonderful. It's changed my life in the sense that I now know that I am transitioning away from the law and into writing, and, and that's very pleasing to me. I really enjoy sitting down at my laptop and getting after it. Mm-hmm. I did that this morning before I came over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's nice. It's a, a breath of fresh air. I, I've loved practicing law for all these years and had a lot of fun with it and had a lot of success. But it's nice to do something else. Yeah. I don't play golf. I don't fish. I don't hunt. Um, I do go to the gym. I do walk up and down the big bridge in Charleston. But it's I'm not sitting at home looking at television. Right, that makes sense. Um, and you've turned it into an audiobook, right? Yes. You re- sat you sat down and actually read it yourself, right? Uh, I had uh, great help. Uh, used a, a crowd in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, that does a lot of work for Hootie and the Blowfish and for Netflix and other production outfits when they're down there, and had the nicest guy who sort of ran the soundboard, sort of a producer director, and did it uh it took about an average of four hours to maybe five five days for five days and then he took it broke it all down called me back about three weeks later and we did some stitch ins places where he wanted to fix and it will be ready uh to go on amazon and um other outlets. Well, by the yeah. time this episode comes out, as far as, as season six, you it will be out. So, okay. uh, yeah, it'll be out there. And uh, what do you hope readers are going to get from this book? From Friday Calls? Yeah. I think one is a, a look at a time in the South that is fast evaporating. Two, there is a morality tale here. There is a sort of Karma can be a bitch. 
And then lastly, I think it is just the enjoyment of the personalities and the stories. The stories are good stories. Yeah, I thought as I was reading it that there were so many stories in here. It's like you're trying to pack a lot into your first novel before you realize you might write another one. And uh, you probably could have written some short stories out of the material you had. You probably could have written two novels out of the material you had. And you put it all in one, right? <laughs> I, I, there's no – it really got to be just what stuff comes into my mind, yeah. I write it. But just like the train that picked up speed, the story picks up speed about midway through, mm-hmm. and then it's hard to put down because then you start getting into the back and forth with the lawyer and, and, and what's going on and so forth. So you take us to, though, just there are two sides of what happens in this legal thing because I, I kind of foreshadowed this a little bit. You've got – um, we talked about the woman who's in the car. Mm-hmm. And maybe one of the reasons that they didn't want to talk about it in your family is because there was a civil lawsuit being potentially threatened as well, right? Right. Yeah. And so in now in real life, of course, you weren't representing no. the, the, <laughs> the the woman's family because mm-hmm. but but in this book, Eddie Terrell ends up representing both the woman's family right. who's died in the crash right. and also Kenny Pete, right? Right. And, and and keep in mind, as I know you do, uh, Eddie Terrell is no kin to the Glens in this right. book. Yeah, yeah, okay, no kin, but there's a lot, uh, a lot of them in. Oh yeah, yeah, in, in yeah. you. So, but you also take us into this world of negotiating a civil case, and mm-hmm. it's almost. Uh, I've been in those situations, and there was a lot of. It's an. It, it's really. We're not going to read the same, but I, I, I commend it to readers because there's a lot in it. It goes unsaid mm-hmm. that makes the deal happen, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. And then so it goes from, from handling that situation to then trying this murder case, and the murder case does get tried. And so let's kind of get back. Just got a couple of short reads here at the end. Okay. I want to talk about life in the courthouse. Um, you spent a lot of time in criminal courthouses, and uh, I think on uh, I think it's about page 205, yeah. you've got a little read here that gives us a flavor for what, uh, what's going on in the courthouse. Can you read that for us? Sure. Um, I love hanging out in courthouses. It's just fascinating. I'll start now. Terrell had gone to see Kenny, get him caught up, and then made a pass through the courthouse just to see what was going on, who was there, what was interesting, who was screwing something up. Peeking in the doorway of courtroom 3C holds the theater of hulking judge Big Ab Alexander, grumpily, audibly, grumping audibly from the benches always, while white-suited Harold Wilson pontificates away, a red clay Alcibiades with a jet black wig, sunglasses, and a high squeaking lilt, as his female client looks on mystified. She is not convinced, but Wilson is, eternally is. Across the hall in 3D, Judge Kaysen Kiger stares off into space as a sloppily dressed young man wearing an I'm with stupid t-shirt and unlaced tennis shoes spews forth with the dog ate my homework excuses for not paying months of past due traffic fines. The kid senses that he is taking a long run off a short dock but persists. Judge Kiger finally focuses on the defendant, pauses and then says sharply, Son, has it not occurred to you that I have heard all this about maybe a hundred thousand times before? So listen to me real good now. We have a long docket here today, and you are putting my train boarding behind schedule. You have until two o'clock to get the money or go to jail. Be back here at two. I need a cigarette. Well, I need more than that. We are in recess until 1045. 
The bailiff recites, all rise, and the kid comes out the door past Terrell, mumbling something about how he is being fucked, fuck them all, fuck, fuck, fuck. It is one of a hundred behavioral templates always in use, though how would he know? Shaking his head, Terrell walks upstairs to the fourth floor where domestic court, also known as fucking and fighting court, is in session. Judge Gary Tash watches over a tennis match of shouting erupting between an angry man and an angry woman over child support payments. Tash is known to let their hot tempers burn out as long as the language doesn't get too bad. It all amuses him as he sits placidly poker-faced. <laughs> now, you have added a flavor to the courtroom, and we're talking about probably criminal misdemeanor court here. Yes. Well, you'd have yeah, you had family court. Family domestic, court, misdemeanor court. Then you had traffic court. Traffic court, then yeah. you had Then you had misdemeanor and probable cause yeah, hearing court. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and, and this is kind of like what, when I did with my first book, I said it in what I called the people's court yeah. because it's sort of where people come to tell their stories, you know. Alibis. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a lot, yeah. lot of your honor, but you don't understand. Yeah, you don't understand, Judge. I just had one drink. You know, well, so, yeah, yeah. If I hadn't heard. Oh yeah, before. and traffic court, of course. Yeah, traffic court. So we got, um, you know, we've got the courthouse now. We're there. We're, we're Kenny Peak is on trial. You're, you're in real life representing him, and, and there's a stress that goes along with this too, right? Because you're having to make decisions that you know their lives depend upon. You're trying to decide whether you're gonna plead them out, whether you're going to have them go to trial and risk life imprisonment. Uh, uh, you know in real life you hadn't heard the answer to his questions, but you probably know that he shot Bo Diddley and uh, might have done it with malice aforethought. <laughs> it wouldn't be fair to say that on the ti- at the time in question, Kenny was very angry with Bo Diddley. Yeah, and, and you know, you being a sharp lawyer figured this out, but you couldn't ask him the question. And so you got a toward the end of the book. You've got a, a chapter entitled "Showtime," which is when the everything's going to come to a head. And you've got a judge in here, Judge Albright. That's a real person, right? Yes. Yeah. And you tried cases before. Yeah. Him. Yeah. He was great. Yeah. And just uh, sort of as our kind of a last read for the day here, um, and kind of get the audience a little bit curious about uh, how they're going to get out of this mess they're in. I'd like you to read just a little bit from the chapter "Showtime." They are no longer in the on-deck circle. They are walking to the plate, a big bat of fact and bluff held to their side. Showtime in the Superior Court of Forsyth County, North Carolina, is here. The courtroom is full. People lean forward when Sweet Kenny, Kenny may be a killer, hulking Kenny, is brought out by the bailiffs. Kenny looks pretty good. Terrell and Patty have done a credible job of getting his sizes down close enough and had gone out to Belks to gather up a blue blazer, a couple of white and blue shirts, some striped neckties, khaki pants, a belt, and brown lace-up shoes. There are just two problems with his look. For all of his prepped-out crispness, a black, now-bespoke son of the Carolina underclass, he is still an enormous anomaly. One of the bailiffs quietly short snort taunts Terrell. Hell, Fast Eddie, you think that jury gonna buy? Let's play dress-up. You can put all the lipstick you want on a pig, but it's still a damn pig. Oink, oink. Terrell has heard it all before. He grins and leans over. Deputy, it ain't lipstick. It's performance art. I ain't trying to turn him into Harry Belafonte. I'm just shading him to a more likable tone. You know what the old Chinese proverb says. The deputy looks blank. Terrell says, oh, never mind. I'm just looking to get one or two of them to let their limbic eyes overrule their conscious brains. Huh? Sir, we will continue this later, but I got to go to work now. 
Terrell's eyes swivel. All rise, thunders across the great room, and there was a great shuffle-ruffle that happens when a hundred people lurch up from the benches in the unison of damn close to a church. The Honorable Douglas A. Albright is up on the bench. He is a big, powerful man, too, and his black robes unfurl like a well-packed 82nd Airborne parachute, something Albright well knew. He had played football at Duke, then gone to Duke Law School, then to Fort Bragg in Vietnam, come back, became an assistant, and then the chief district attorney of the next county over. He was known to be relentless, a bulldog, and also fair and a smartman. He had the judicial it. He did not suffer fools lightly. He suffered them not at all. A cracking pointed voice and a matinee idle handsome face gave him command of all arrayed before him. Terrell loved trying cases before him. Albright had a sly sense of subtle humor, possessed a semaphore signal flashing eyes, was downright funny in chambers, and looked after all the lawyers in front of him as long as they respected their work and did it earnestly and well. He was one of the reasons the law was a jealous mistress. And so I've had that experience, too, in front of judges that, you know, have been in court and have tried cases themselves. And I think that's probably one of the marks of, of a good judge who's actually been there and done it, right? Because Absolutely. They, they understand the pressure the lawyer's under. They understand what it takes to put on a case. And uh, and yet sometimes you appear in front of some other judges. <laughs> you know, and, and in this case, uh, I guess in a case as high, high profile as this could have been, a murder case and you're going to trial, um, you, you had to have a, a little bit of butterflies and nerves Absolutely. going into that. Absolutely. Um, did you wiggle out of it the same way that Eddie Terrell wiggled out of it here? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Got lucky. Yeah. Got yeah. lucky. Some people said some things yeah. that but, they shouldn't have said, and, and, was, I, and yeah. I heard them. And you heard them. And, and that's the mark of a good trial lawyer is listening, right, because you go in with a plan, and but things are going to happen in court, right? Sure. You're going to hear somebody say something, and if you're, if you're looking at your notes and you're planning your next question, you might miss – the key to the case. And there was something that was said in this case that turned out to be <laughs> the key. I don't know. I can't recall who taught me, but they said always be half an hour early because you get to watch and listen and you no, no telling. One of the most prescient things anybody ever said to me, go look at the jury pool and see what books and newspapers they're reading, magazines they're reading. to tell you about them. Mm. Had mm. a judge from Seattle, Washington, I listened to lecture one time, long time ago, said, Ask jurors what the bumper stickers are on the back of their cars. That'll tell you a lot, too. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was trying a case one time, and big, big jury trial lasted a long time. We're doing the jury selection. The judge is letting us ask a lot of questions. Yeah. You know, They don't always give you the leeway to ask them what books they've read, and they kind of look at you like, wait a minute, come on. Mm-hmm. Let's get on with it. Because it's a big case, they let us do it. And I asked them you know, what books they were reading, and I got to this one guy, and he said, I don't think you want to know what book? I'm, so what are you going to do then, right? You're, you're, right. The, you know the jur- other jurors are going to ask him when they get back there, so at right. least I ought to know. Right. So I have to you know, tell him, go ahead, and, and, and says, well, I'm reading, and I'm representing the defendant. He said, well, I'm reading this book called uh, The Runaway Jury. <laughs> John Gresham. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, okay, I hope I don't have a runaway jury here. <laughs> Did you have those sort of real-life experiences mm-hmm. in court where you, mm-hmm. where you were able to interact with the bailiffs and the jurors? Absolutely. And, the, yeah. and, that, and that was fun. Uh, I I was taught that you own the courtroom, that it's your courtroom, that when you walk in there, that's your place. Wherever I've tried cases, I've always gone to the courtroom many times before, sat in there, thought about it, saw where you positioned yourself, et cetera. 
and you just sort of get a confidence that you know where you're going and you know what you're going to do. But as you say, you got to be flexible because all of a sudden something will come out of left field and what are you going to do with it? Yeah, speaking of being flexible, when it gets back to writing the books, <clears throat> you I don't think you would call this a traditional legal thriller um, necessarily, although there was some thrilling courtroom scenes toward the end of the book. Uh, did you learn some things in writing this book that, that are going to influence what you do with your next book? And if so, what did you learn and what are you thinking about? Well, this second thing I'm getting ready to finish, or at least the manuscript, uh, the primary thing is I learned to lead with Eddie Terrell and keep it a little simpler. So Eddie's a consistent thread. I've, again, I, I am, for better or worse, a storyteller, so there's a lot of story stuff in here. And I have every expectation that uh, Alice Osborne and her two proofreaders will winnow this thing down pretty good. Mm -hmm. This has turned into a more ambitious thing than I envisioned when I started it. Yeah, are you going to be, you know, so part of being an author is you know, getting that feedback and then accepting the editor's views. Because you got a lot of good stories you want to tell. Yeah. It's just you got to decide, am I going to tell them all in this piece or mm -hmm. am I going to tell them in something else? You know? If I went on from now until Methuselah, <laughs> I'd still have stories to tell. Well, that's good. So you're, you're not going to want for the storytelling. Uh, well, look, uh -huh. Vernon, uh, we're, we're, we're out of time. It's been a great uh, – I've had great fun talking with you about uh, – lawyering and uh, writing about uh, true life stories in Winston-Salem and, and our days, not so much our days at Wake Forest Law School, but coming from that same same area. Um, I didn't get downtown much when, when I was in law school. You know, we, you know, our, our drink houses uh, were, were, were pretty much closer to campus. You know? What was it? It was uh, uh, the beer place. They had something called the Safari Room when I the was in school. The the safari. They called it the Saf Room. The yeah. Safari Room was yeah. owned by my late brother, Joe Henry, and yeah, one of the Reynolds you, boys. You're related to everybody, you know. The, they, the Safari Room is one of these very dark. You walk in, it's very right. dark. You, you have to, your yeah. feet stick to the floor right. because of the beer that's been spilled. Right. And you could get a picture for about a buck and a half or something. You know? Right. And what was the what was the beer place? There was a great place. Was it Primos or something people used to go to? There wasn't anything downtown. No. The only thing downtown was sort of the Sir Winston in the bottom of the old, uh, gosh, I can't even think of the name of the building. They've turned it into a fancy hotel. All those now. places on that row now have been stripped because they, they made it go down to the stadium and everything and yep. put, put some nice places in yeah. there. Anyway, we're talking Winston. So nobody's yeah. going to know what we're talking about here. So. Right, that's true. Good <laughs> anyway, point. look, thanks, uh, thanks uh, Vernon, for being us, Eddie, Eddie Terrell, Vernon Glenn, whoever we're talking to here. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. I really enjoyed this. Thank you very much. Welcome. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. 
We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.